take your copy of God's Word and find the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Today we'll look at verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16 verses 13 through 19. So we think about Jesus Christ, builder of the church. Some of you are not old enough to remember Larry King, but he had a the most popular show on cable news for many, many years, Larry King Live on CNN. Larry King himself was not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but on one occasion he said, quote, Jesus Christ had a more profound effect on mankind than any individual ever born. If there's one person in history I would like to interview, it would be Jesus. This is the fourth sermon in a series of seven sermons that Pastor Brian and I are preaching under the theme, Jesus Christ, the glory of God revealed. And today, Jesus Christ, the builder of the church. There are two questions that are answered for us in this text. The first question answered for us is, who is Jesus? And the second question that this text answers for us is, what is the relationship of Jesus to the church? With our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16, would you follow as I begin reading with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There are three truths in this passage that I want you to consider with me this morning as we think about Jesus Christ, builder of the church. The first truth found in verses 13 through 17 is Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Let's look once again at the narrative in verse 13. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the northern parts, north of Galilee there. On a clear day, you can see Mount Hermon from Caesarea Philippi. And there he asked them this question. He asked his disciples this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Even in, a, even in asking the question, Jesus was identifying himself as the Son of Man. Eighty-three times in the gospel records, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. It is his self-designation. 
Now it depicts Jesus as God incarnate, God in the flesh. We've seen that uh, last uh, Sunday in Philippians 2 and Sunday before in John chapter 1, the Sunday before in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, he is the God-man, but it's far more than just his humanity that is, uh, uh, is, is uh, described here. We'll come back in just a moment to Matthew chapter 16, but uh, hold your place there and find uh, the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We read about the Son of Man. And uh, Daniel records it this way. In my vision, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He, this son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, we learn of this son of man who will come, and uh, he will be worshipped by all peoples, nations, and men of every language. He will come with the clouds. It is clearly a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it refers to his messianic reign, that he will sit on David's throne. And so we find back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, let's go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus asked the 12 this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus wasn't in the dark about what they were saying. He had ears, he could hear, and uh, he, he knew what the people of his day were saying, but he wanted to know what they were hearing, and so we find their reply in verse 14. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Well, we know that John the Baptist had been beheaded by this time, and uh, maybe some were thinking that uh, Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others say that you are Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. And still others say you are Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So the talk out across the land about who this teacher, this uh, healer of sickness, uh, this preacher, Jesus, uh, had a lot of answers. Uh, Jesus wasn't so much interested in what uh, the people of his day were saying as to what they themselves thought and said. And so we find in verse, verse 15, Jesus asked a, a second question. Actually, it's two questions, but it's really one. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Now, that's one of the most important questions that any of us could ever ask and answer. Who is Jesus. And quite frankly, it demands an answer from every single one of us. It demands an answer from every man, woman, boy, or girl, whoever has lived or ever will live. Who is Jesus? 
Now, if you answer this question incorrectly, you will suffer eternal loss. But if you answer this question correctly, you will have found the key to eternal life if you choose to use that key to enter into life. And so, here's the question. Who is Jesus? I had to answer that question when I was a lad. And you have to answer that question. And if you've not thought about it, it's time you begin thinking about it. Well, verse 16, we find uh, an answer given by none other than Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the most loquacious of all the disciples. He was often uh, speaking up when others would not. Sometimes he said things that he regretted saying. But he got it right this time. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered Jesus saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who Jesus is. He is the, the Christ of God. He is the promised Messiah who has come in human flesh. He is the son of the living God. He is no mere teacher. He is no mere mortal. He is both God and man. Literally, if you translate uh, Simon Peter's answer here, it would be, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living God. It's one of the ancient creeds said uh, of him, God, very God of very God. Jesus is the God man. And Peter's answer reveals that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that Jesus is divine. He's the son of the living God. And how did Peter know this? How could Peter get this? And the other people uh, there in uh, Galilee and uh, Judea miss it. Well, the answer is found in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or John, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It was a supernatural revelation. God himself disclosed to Simon Peter that the one he had been following since John's Gospel chapter 1 was in fact the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. David Platt said uh, of this verse, this passage, who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. If you think Jesus was a good teacher, then you will follow him like you would a good teacher. If you think Jesus merely has some good ideas, then you will listen to what he has to say every once in a while. If you think Jesus was a good example, then you will try to follow his example. David Platt continues, however, if you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, and to reign and rule over all as Lord, then that changes everything about how you live. The church is made up of people who believe in that Jesus and know him intimately. And then David said, do you know Jesus? 
intimately. So I echo his question. Do you know him? Do you know just about him as a historical figure? Or do you know him in a personal saving way in which you've trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins? But not only is Jesus both the Son of Man and the Son of God, there's a second truth I want you to see with me in the first part of verse 18. That second truth is Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built or established. The church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look in verse 18. After Peter's great confession of faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus blessed him. Blessed or blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Verse 18, now, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The key phrase I want you to see here is this phrase, on this rock I will build my church. Now, among New Testament scholars, there's three predominant views about uh, that phrase, on this rock I will build my church. What is the rock upon which the church is being built? Some would say it was being built on Peter. After all, Jesus said, you're Peter and I'm going to build this rock on, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Others would say, no, it's uh, Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Shall others say that when Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church, he was referring to himself. That's my personal view. That's not even a majority view, but I don't hold it by myself. There's a significant minority of evangelical scholars who believe that when Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church, he was referring to himself. But let's go back and consider each one in turn. First, Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church. And those, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church say, he was referring to Peter himself and that Peter was the first bishop of Rome and therefore he became what we even know today as the, as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we have no solid evidence that Peter ever even visited Rome. Perhaps he did, perhaps he didn't. But there's no evidence that he did. Furthermore, it is uh, to me inconceivable that, that Jesus would be speaking of Peter when you look down in chapter 16, Matthew 16, verses 21, 22, and 23. Just after this happened, we read in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be rise, raised to life. He's referring to his, his impending uh, death at uh, the hands of the, of the Roman officials in, in Jerusalem. And when Jesus said that, verse 22, Peter took him, Jesus' aside, and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I, I mean, I, I'm far from what I ought to be, but I, I just don't know that I could rebuke Jesus. He took Peter aside and began to rebuke him. He said to Jesus, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in, in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And a lot of what Jesus said to Peter in verse 23, it is inconceivable to me that a person would say that when Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, he was talking about Peter. Uh, a, second, a second understanding of this phrase, on this rock I'll build my church, was Peter's confession. This is the majority view among uh, evangelical Bible scholars. And I want to say that that is true. The church is built upon the confession of our faith that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't come, you don't come into the church apart from the true church. I'm not talking about the visible church, but the true church. You don't, you don't enter into the, to the membership of the church apart from a, a, a genuine, sincere confession of your faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that is true, but I don't think it's all the truth. We'll come back to uh, Matthew 16, but let's find 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, on this rock I'll build my church. Maybe some 30 years later, Peter wrote uh, this letter that bears his name. We know as 1 Peter. I mean, this is what he said. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, notice the, the word stone there uh, is capitalized, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. That is an obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone who was rejected but chosen by God to be our savior. Verse five, you also like living stones. Notice this time the word stones is plural and it's not capitalized. So there's a contrast here between the living stone and the living stones. And Peter's making the contrast here. These living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the implication is quite clear. Jesus is the living stone. He is the foundation upon which the church is established. And that those of us who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who've been born of the Holy Spirit, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so we see the contrast here. Jesus is the foundation. We are the superstructure, if you please. We offer these spiritual sacrifices. That's what we do when we come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day, when we sing our praises to God, when we pray together, when we give our tithes and offerings, when we listen to the word of God being preached to us. Now he goes on to say in verse 6 and following, for in the scripture, and here he's quoting uh, from, from the Old Testament here. In the, uh, in the scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That is a clear, clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse seven, now to you who believe this stone is precious. It is to those of us who believe in Jesus. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected as Jesus has become the capstone. He's not only the foundation, he's the capstone. And verse eight, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That is, those who refuse to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will stumble. 
And uh, if they don't repent and believe, they will stumble eternally. They stumble, why, verse 8, because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus, when Jesus, let's go back to Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, I myself am persuaded and have been persuaded for many, many decades now that Jesus was referring to himself. Now, in our Greek New Testament, there's a play on words here in uh, this uh, 18th verse where Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, the word translated Peter comes from the word Petros, which is a masculine form, and it means a, a pebble, a tiny rock that you might pick up in your hand and skip across the placid waters of a lake. The word translated here in verse 18, uh, rock, is from the same root word, but it's the feminine form and it's petra. And it means a big boulder, a whole substrata of rock. Now, some of you are thinking, Jesus didn't speak Greek, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Yes, he did, but it's in, our, it's in our New Testament as Greek. Spirit of God superintended every single syllable in the Bible. So here's, what, here's the way I see it in my imagination. Jesus is gathered there in Caesarea Philippi. He asked him, who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, says to Peter, I, I, believe Jesus, I believe Jesus looked at Peter and pointed at Peter and he said, you are Petros, but upon this Petra, I will build my church. You're a little rock, but I'm a boulder. I'm going to build a church upon myself. It agrees with the rest of Scripture. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Corinth about uh, the church, this is what he said. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. Each one should be careful how he builds. Watch this, verse 10, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says the foundation is Jesus. It is true that Peter's confession of faith is, is, is a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the foundation itself is, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock. We sang this morning, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. If it's not true, we ought to take it out of the hymn book. But it is true. We read it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. I won't, I won't list the names of all the, the Bible scholars that believe this view, but Campbell Morgan believed Jesus was the foundation. James Montgomery Boyce believed that Jesus was the foundation. And furthermore, later in life, the great theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, Augustine, one of the greatest theologians from the time of the apostles, the greatest theologian from the time of the apostles until the time of the reformers, was Augustine. 
And late in life, he wrote something called Retractions. And one of the things he wrote in Retractions was he retracted his view that he once believed that Peter was the foundation of the church and said, no, it is Jesus who is the foundation of the church. So I want to say this morning emphatically that Jesus himself is the rock upon which the church, his church, has been and is being and will be built until he comes at the end of the age. Now there's a third and final truth I want you to see with me in this passage of scripture. This is uh, in verses 18, last part of verse 18 and all of verse 19 is this. Jesus builds his church as sinners repent and believe in him. Jesus builds his church as sinners repent and believe in him. Verse 18, latter part of verse 18. Uh, There Jesus said, I will build my church. He's, He's building his church. Thirty-five years ago, our church was growing rapidly. People would come to me and say, "You need to write a book about church growth. You got a lot. You got you got a story to tell." And I would say, "That sounds like a lot of work to me that I don't want to do." I had a lot of people say that to me, both members and non-members. In fact, uh, if I hadn't been so lazy, I probably would have written that book. But I had to recant a lot of it because my views have changed from 35 years ago. 35 years ago, I thought enough about, I thought I knew enough about growing a church to write a book. 25 years ago, I knew enough about growing a church to write a chapter in somebody else's book on church growth. 15 years ago, I could probably write a brief article in a Baptist paper. I want to tell you everything I know about church growth. Three verses. Everything I know about church growth now. I've been duly humbled by God. And I give him praise. Number one, Matthew 16 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. He's going to do it. It's going to happen. He said it. He promised it. Number two, look in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter preached. Spirit fell. 3,000 were converted and baptized. The church exploded within... Weeks, they were up to 5,000 men and about 5,000 women probably. And Anyway, we come to chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And we read, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who did it? The Lord did it. And then back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, here Paul is talking about 
uh, the church, different ones preached the gospel. Paul did, Apollos did, Cephas did. But we pick up, we pick up the account in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I, Paul, planted the seed. That's the gospel seed. He preached the gospel. <clears throat> Apollos watered it. Apollos came along after Paul, and he watered this gospel seed. Watch this. But God made it grow. Uh, we, we plant gospel seed, whether it's, whether, it's, whether it's evangelistic preaching to a large uh, congregation or whether it is one-on-one -on -one sharing the gospel with a friend or a relative that doesn't know Christ. That is planting the gospel seed. And we water that gospel seed with our friendship and with our encouragement to believe in Jesus and with our prayers and with our tears. Look at it again, verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. That's what you and I are. We're not anything to make a church grow, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, God has chosen to work through human instrumentality. But we could work from sunrise to sunset, and even late into the night. But it's God who causes that gospel seed to take root in the heart of an unregenerate, gospel-hardened sinner and produce new life. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we, we need to uh, look in the rest of verse 18 and 19. All right. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now watch the latter part of verse 18. And the gates of Hades, some of you have translations that say hell, uh, hell is the translation Hades is the root word and the gates of Hades the gates of hell shall not overcome it you have a version that says prevail against it so which is it is it Hades or is it hell uh, we'll find out we get that seminar room in heaven. Both places are real, and certainly if it's not hell here, hell is taught elsewhere in the, in the Bible. But I'm just going to try to take Hades and hell, and I want to I want to just encapsulate it in this in this thought. It is a reference to the kingdom of darkness, of which Satan is the prince. He's the prince of death. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus said. Hell is real, and someday uh, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. That's, that's no myth. So uh, let's just take it this morning. For, for the purposes of this sermon, let's, we're talking about the, the kingdom of darkness ruled over by 
Satan. All right, look at it again. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators, Anglican bishop in the 19th century in the Church of England said, and I quote, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands, then they pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his, in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning, yet is not consumed. Is J.C. Ryle correct? Indeed he is. Is that all the truth? I think not. I think not. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades slash hell will not overcome it. Now, I don't know a lot about uh, military science. <laughs> I had five semesters of ROTC at Auburn. We all had ROTC when I was a student. So I know a little bit. And I know this, you don't fight a war with gates. The gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates of darkness is not a, re a reference, and, I, and I, as I understand it, it's not a reference to a weapon of attack to seek to destroy and overcome and do away with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In ancient times, a, a, a gate was a very solid structure to keep out the enemy. And uh, it, was a, it was not an offensive weapon, it was a, it was a defensive fortress. And so what Jesus is saying here is, when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is following as we have been called to follow, when Jesus is our absolute Lord and we are his servants, and our response to Jesus is always yes, 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 yes. It is never no or, or later. It's always yes. And when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying yes, we become the church militant and we assault the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness shall not overcome the offensive militant church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we're being everything Jesus has called us to be and do. So how does that work? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 19. And then we're done. I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Here it is, verse 19. I, Jesus, will give you, that's in that occasion, the 12 apostles and 
to all of us down in this subsequent generation, 2,000 years later, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is not, this is not a reference to spiritual warfare as such. I believe in spiritual warfare. It's clearly taught in the Bible. But not in this verse as such. It's not binding the strong man. Look at it again. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who has the keys? The church does. Jesus has given it not to Peter. Other than the fact that he was a follower of Jesus, but he's given to the church. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what do we do with those keys? Whatever we bind on earth is bound on heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So how does that take place? It takes place as we preach the gospel of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is from the Heidelberg Catechism many centuries ago. Here's the question. This is question 84. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut? How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut? How? Here's the answer. Quote, by proclaiming and openly witnessing according to the command of Christ to believers one and all that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, by proclaiming and witnessing to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them so long as they are not converted. There it is. We have the keys. We have the gospel. We announce the gospel and call sinners to repent and believe. And when they repent and believe, the doorway to heaven is opened. But if they do not repent and believe, and they live out their entire life never having repented of their sins and putting their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they're condemned eternally. God has given to the church that authority. If you say to me, I have turned from my sins and I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I can say to you, based on your, if that's a sincere confession of faith, you're in the kingdom. And if you say to me, I, I, I don't believe this Jesus. I don't believe this gospel. I think it's all religious nonsense, superstition. I can say to you on the basis of verse 19 that you are even now under the wrath of God. And if you do not repent and believe, you will be cast forever from the presence of God. That's what it means, verse 19. So we learned about Jesus. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. And we learned that in the relationship to the church, it's his church. He founded it. He founded it upon himself. And we learned if we trust in him, we enter into the kingdom. So the question that every one of us faces this day is, am I in the kingdom? Are you a subject of the king? How do you enter the kingdom? As a religious leader 
in Jesus' day who came to Jesus at night and asked that question. His name was Nicodemus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That's the only way in, new birth. But all who believe, all who receive him, to them gives he the power to become the children of God. And because I know almost everybody here, and I've walked with you for a long time as your pastor, I think I can say with confidence that most of us in this room are in the kingdom. I mean, if you became a member, you had to give a testimony of faith to me or one of our other pastors somewhere along the way. But I also believe in an assembly of this many people, there's probably some here today who have never crossed that threshold from death unto life. You're still spiritually dead, doomed, and damned. But Jesus is life, life abundant and life eternal. And he will save you if you come to him. I can't think of any reason why you should delay. None at all. We do not have the promise of another sunrise. Are you ready to meet your maker? If not, come to Jesus. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you who went to the cross, died in your place, bore the sin debt that you could never pay yourself, was raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Come to us, Jesus. And know that for, the, for you for the very first time, the joy of sins forgiven. Peace with God. God is your Father in heaven. Our musicians are going to come now and lead us in our song of decision and commitment. I'll be here. Pastor Brown will be there. Another pastor over here. Another pastor over there. We'd like to pray for you, talk to you, answer your questions, point you to Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. We stand and sing together. Come while we sing.